the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. You can follow the show, danproftshow.com where you'll find uh, podcasts of the show for your listening convenience. Uh, you can also find podcasts, Spotify, iTunes. Uh, follow us uh, on uh, social media, at Dan Prof Show, both on Twitter and Facebook, at Prof Dan on Instagram. And we begin uh, on this edition with a question. Are we all in this together? Are we all in this together? It's a question posed by... Uh, Harvard philosophy professor Michael Sandel in an op-ed in the New York Times. And I'll get to his answer uh, momentarily, his argument, at least, uh, momentarily. But there are some other questions that are prompted by, are we all in this together? Uh, And I was thinking about this when I saw last evening uh, a Fox, uh, a poll on Fox News that to the question, do you directly know somebody who has COVID-19, who's been infected? 25% of the respondents said they did. 75% did not. Did not know someone directly that had been infected with COVID-19. Three quarters of the population hasn't experienced it at at a personal level. Obviously, you have feelings for people who are suffering, even if you don't know them. But it's still not as real as it is when it's your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. I think that's fair. And something else that I was thinking when I was thinking about that, the impact. New Jersey and New York account for a majority of the cases, a majority of the deaths. New Jersey and New York, the financial and media capital of the country. If you had the same number of cases the same percentage of the overall cases, the same percentage of infections, the same percentage of deaths concentrated in Nebraska and New Mexico instead of New York and New Jersey. Do you think the media coverage would be the same? Do you think the response would be the same? Would we be in a national shutdown effectively? And if, you think it would be different. Why do you think that is? And this is not to dismiss the suffering, the infections, the death in New York or New Jersey. It's not to blame anybody. It's just to ask the question per, are we all in this together? We'll answer the question now. Are we all in this together in the circumstances on the ground as we find them? And also would we be, uh, all in this together 
in the scenario that I presented. Hmm. Well, let me give you uh, some responses. I played this clip yesterday, but I think it bears hearing again. This is Michael Harriot, who is a writer for the root.com on Joy Reid's MSNBC program on Sunday. Yeah, see, again, I disagree with the notion that we shouldn't be covering this because I think it is more than just I don't care about these black and brown people who are dying. I think that what they're saying quite clearly, when you see the numbers, when you see the statistics, when you see the CDC data is I want more black and brown people to die. Right. That, that can't if you want the government to open up, then you want more black and brown people to die. We see it happening in real time. We see it in Donald Trump's tweets. We see it in the data. There can be no other outcome if you open up what they call their society or the, the business or the country. If unless you see more but, but black I mean, and the, brown people the, die, people who want to open up the economy, salvage their livelihoods. And remember, it's not just about paying bills. It's also about your very existence as a human being, if you believe work is at least in part soul craft, which I do. People who believe that, who want to do so rationally and safely, but expeditiously, want to see more black and brown people die? What about black and brown people who want to do that? Do they also want to see more black and brown people die? That's the end game here. So if you're going to play the identitarian card, if you're going to do the race hustle, how do you answer the question, are we all in this together in the affirmative? If you're going to demonize and marginalize people who are upset at the over-officious nanny statism coming from certain governors around the country, as well as the real economic anxiety they feel, accommodation of anxiety over their economic future and anxiety over their constitutional rights, God-given, not government-given? How are you going to answer the question, are we all in this together in the affirmative? Philip Rucker, Washington Post columnist, on another one of those wonderful MSNBC shows. This is the one hosted by uh, tall tale teller Brian Williams. That's right, Brian. And the other thing that the president sees when he looks at images of these protesters like the ones playing right now is he sees his own campaign banner. Uh, he knows that these are his supporters. They may not all be his supporters. We're not sure who they all uh, are going to vote for in November. But many of them uh, are Trump supporters, uh, are waving Trump flag. And Trump, the president, uh, knows that he needs to show some solidarity with them. It's one of the reasons why, for example, after uh, the Charlottesville uh, attack. He showed solidarity with the neo-Nazi protesters there. Uh, in this case, he's trying to show solidarity with these folks saying, I stand with you. Uh, I believe in what you believe in, which is getting back to work and reopening this economy. Mm -hmm. And to stand with them and to believe in that is to uh, cater to neo-Nazis, which the president never did. It says something about uh, the intellectual honesty of people like Philip Rucker. You know it's not true, but you repeat it anyway. Did the president, I mean, I'm not going to relitigate Charlottesville, but did the president uh, speak with less than uh, precision? Could it have been, could he have communicated better on the topic? Of course. I mean, what else is new? Uh, however, however, the idea that the, the President Trump has ever stood with neo-Nazis is absurd. It's just wrong.
it's wrong that he's an anti-Semite. All the phobias and all the isms. The last refuges of the scoundrel. So tell me how we're all in this together when Philip Rucker wants to analogize people protesting in Lansing, Michigan, over Gretchen Whitmer banning their ability to uh, enjoy private gatherings in their home uh, and uh, use neo-Nazi analogies to those individuals. Hmm. And again, per Trump's executive order today, temporarily suspending immigration to the United States, uh, we get the xenophobia criticisms again. Rinse and repeat. Just like it was xenophobic to uh, shut down travel from China to the United States at the end of January. Does it appear xenophobic now? What do we owe one another as citizens? That's the question that Michael Sandel asks. His criticism is centered around America's alleged meritocratic culture. The problem is we're a meritocracy, and that leaves some people behind. That's why we're not all in this together. I don't think so. Uh, I think it, the problem is fundamentally that um, we're not starting from the same place in terms of shared values. And uh, if you don't start from the same place in terms of shared values, it's very difficult to say we're all in this together. How can we be all in this together if you're pulling in one direction and I'm pulling in another? How can we be all in this together if we have a philosophical disagreement and rather seeing than seeing if we can find any areas of commonality? You just say that our difference in philosophy is the result of me being a racist or a xenophobe or any of the other isms or, 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 or uh, accusing me of suffering from any of the customary phobias. Difficult to afford solidarity in that way, wouldn't you say? Uh, when we come back, I want to uh, pick up more of uh, Michael Sandel's piece and then fold in a very good piece uh, by uh, Mark Andreessen. You know Mark Andreessen's name. He's the billionaire, now tech investor, the uh, founder of Netscape. Time to build, says Mark Andreessen. I like... Uh, where Andreessen is going much more so than the Harvard philosophy professor to probably no one's surprise. More Dan Prof show right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show and uh before the break speaking about uh, this new york times op-ed by michael sandal harvard philosophy professor and mentioning this mark andreessen piece that was posted to uh believe his company, either his blog or his company's website, Andreessen Horowitz, that we'll get to in just a second. But back to Sandals' piece and this, are we all in this together? Are we all in this together? And the question I asked, had uh, a majority of the cases and the deaths occurred in Nebraska and New Mexico rather than New Jersey and New York, 
would the coverage be the same? Would the national response be the same? Or do we have a disproportionate focus on this because New York City, that metropolitan area, is the financial and media center of the Western world, frankly? Remember the famous, uh, the famous observation of Pauline Kael, the uh, New Yorker uh, film critic, upon Richard Nixon winning election in 1972 against George McGovern. Pauline Kael, New York City denizen, said, I can't believe Richard Nixon won. I don't know anyone who voted for him. Richard Nixon won 49 states. That was a commentary on Pauline Kael's world, not the United States. And I wonder if the epicenter of the outbreak was Nebraska or New Mexico, or those were the two states that were suffering the most in terms of infection and death, if we wouldn't be hearing similar from those denizens of New York. Would they be just as concerned? Would they be demanding Nebraska and New Mexico be shut down? Would they be scrambling ventilators and making sure that all the resources necessary that the governors were demanding were over there. Would we be glued to CNN watching Pete Ricketts, the governor of Nebraska, give daily briefings on the state of play and combating the outbreak there? The media uh, would be the same. The media coverage, the stories would be the same. And the response would be the same if we just moved the caseload from Nebraska, uh, from New York and New Jersey to Nebraska, and New Mexico. Do you think that? Michael Sandel this Harvard philosophy professor, he writes, the Trump administration decided the federal government would pay for coronavirus treatment for the uninsured, whether it would be possible to reconcile the moral logic of this policy with the notion that health coverage in ordinary times should be left to the market remains to be seen. No, it actually doesn't. I can do it right now. If you'd like professor exigent circumstances and you rally to the need, it'd be the same thing. If somebody had a bullet wound and goes to the emergency room, what happens? They get treated if they're uninsured. What happens in normal times when they don't have a bullet wound? You have to either qualify for one of the state or federal programs, Medicaid, Medicare, or buy private health insurance on the open market. You know, because, for example, you may, if, if you are able, you're working and you're making money, so you buy health insurance because something is not a right if it cannot exist independently among all simultaneously without imposing a burden on one to the other. That's the difference between a right and a privilege or a right and an opportunity. I'm sorry, the professor at Harvard, philosophy professor, I'm sorry that's beyond his grasp. He uh, goes on, we need to better reward the social and economic contributions of work done by the majority of Americans who don't have college degrees. We need to reckon with the morally corrosive downsides of a meritocracy. See, he argues that we're not together because... We're too meritocratic. We're too meritocratic in an age where our school system is everybody gets an A and a trophy for the A. He writes, meritocracies produce morally unattractive attitudes among those who make it to the top. The more we believe that our success is our own doing, the less likely we are to feel indebted to and therefore obligated to our fellow citizens. The relentless emphasis on rising and striving encourages the winners to inhale too deeply of their success and to look down on those who lack meritocratic credentials. Uh, it's true. Uh, you know, pride goeth before the fall. You know what uh, tempers that? You know, believing too much in your own greatness. Faith. Does a professor want to talk about that? 
I mean, the Ivy League schools were founded as divinity schools. What do you say, Prof? One of the things that uh, keeps people's heads about them, keeps them in uh, making sure they are uh, seeing themselves in proportion to the world, is to recognize that uh, God is God. They are not God. You want to have that conversation? Hmm. Uh, he uh, goes on, meritocratic hubris and the resentment it provokes are at the heart of the populist backlash against elites. Mm, I'm sorry, uh, you're using a phrase that needs to be broken apart. Meritocratic hubris. No. There's meritocracy and the belief that, hey, somebody earned something, then they have a right to it. That's fair, fair, you know, fair and square. These are the rules. You play by the rules more successfully than other people, then, you know, good on you. Hubris among the elite circles or within the elite circles, the resentment it provokes, he gets to it, but he doesn't know that he's disconnected the argument. In recent decades, governing elites have done little to make life better for the nearly two-thirds of Americans who do not have a college degree. And they fail to confront what should be one of the central questions of our politics. How can we ensure that Americans who do not inhabit the privileged ranks of professional classes find dignified work that enables them to support a family, contribute to their community and so and uh, with social and win social esteem? Well, one of the things you can do is not take their businesses away from them or shut down the economy. That's one way you can treat them as adults who can make risk assessments when provided the information. You uh, realize that it has nothing to do with meritocracy and everything to do with hubris. Right. The governing elites thought they could order other people's lives for them and they failed. The professor has that right. Has nothing to do with meritocracy. So many are in those positions in spite of their performance, not because of it. And uh, that has become more and more recognized as more and more scrutiny was applied to what, what's going on at my local school district. What, what's going on at these on these college campuses? The arts community, Hollywood, ridiculing me, Wall Street, putting themselves through their influence ahead of me when it comes to the rules of the game. They don't have to abide them, but I do. The court system criminal justice system yeah merit it's it's the lack of meritocracy it's hubris replacing meritocracy that has been the problem not meritocratic hubris what you have is fumu in elite circles and a stratified elite based on at least in part he's right here a college degree based on credentials that are not a substitute for, for performance. And so in, in that sense, uh, the professor is where Michael Lind is talking about the real separation is the college degreed and the not college degreed. We need to ask whether reopening the economy means going back to a system that over the past four decades pulled us apart or whether we can emerge from this crisis with an economy that enables us to say and believe we were all in this together. That's what uh, he concludes. That's how he concludes. We're all in this together on their terms. On Michael Sandel's terms. That's the subtext here. And the answer is no, we're not. Uh, Ran out of time to get to Mark Andreessen's piece. I'll have to do it um, 
on Wednesday evening show, but uh, I'll tweet it out as well so you can uh, you know do some reading in advance and uh, follow along. This is the Dan Prof Show. She could tell right away that I was bad to the bone. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And could the anti shutdown protests, those who want the great American shutdown to end, be the spark for another Tea Party movement or for the resurgence of the Tea Party movement? Taxed enough already? I don't know. Certainly a tough environment to talk about uh, taxes and spending, given $6 trillion plus of uh, federal spend and counting. But uh, there are protests that have occurred uh, over the last several days in two dozen states, including uh, cities and blue states, blue states as well as cities uh, that are blue in purple and red states and it's going to be very interesting as georgia tennessee south carolina move toward reopening portions of their economy and states that are sort of similarly situated in terms of level of outbreak do not people are going to be watching and there's going to be peer pressure applied in at least one direction if not multiple directions for more on this, we're pleased to be joined by, uh, again, by uh, Jim Antle. He is the politics editor at Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com, author of Devouring Freedom, Can Big Government Ever Be Stopped? Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, what about this uh, prospect of, uh, of a, a Tea Party movement? I mean, the, certainly some of the uh, rallies slash protests that we've seen have that have that feel and perhaps sure. a lot of the, the previous participants back from 2010. But um, does it have uh, staying power, I guess, is the question. Yeah, I, I think that is the, the question. I think at the moment you're starting to see some pushback against the quarantines, against the business closures. If you're starting to see some of the people who want to see the economy reopen uh, gain their voices and, and do some activism and do some protesting. And this seems to be particularly strong in states that are blue, that are run by Democrats. You have Democratic governors, Democratic state legislatures, but a large subculture of conservative voters who are are basically shut out of government right now because none of their candidates have won in recent elections or their minorities in the state legislatures. That seems to be where some of this is, is at its strongest, this resistance to some of the business closures and the desire to want to open up the economy. Now, public polling still shows large and broad majorities of people uh, are scared of the coronavirus, Mm -hmm. uh, would like to give social distancing more time, uh, are are willing to to stay home themselves. Uh, But you're starting to see this this loud and vocal and perhaps growing minority uh, speak out. Well, right. These things happen in curves, too. What you see uh, is early adopters um, and uh, it could grow from here and maybe and maybe not, but it could. And so they'd be like, oh, there's only a few hundred people or there was only twenty five hundred people in Washington state in Seattle. Twenty five hundred people in Seattle 
I don't know. That's pretty impressive given the environment. It is pretty impressive. Uh, but 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 regardless, it, th- those are you know those are the first people who bought the iPhone to use an analogy. Uh, and before sure. it became, you know, uh, mass, mass, uh, mass consumption, before it was consumed by the masses and then the late adopters. And so uh, I'll tell you what, it seems to me if you have more imperiousness from governors like Gretchen Whitmer in other states, that will certainly fuel it. Well, that's definitely a big part of what's fueling this is that some of these governors, some of these states have. Uh, begun to overreach in their efforts to, to try to get people to stay home. Uh, there are there's a feeling that some of these rules are sort of arbitrary. You know, you you can uh, you know you can't go out on your boat, but you can you know run over near the lake. Uh, you know, liquor stores and marijuana dispensaries can be open. They're essential businesses. Right. Uh, churches are are shut down. Uh, so there are a lot of people who, who feel that there, there's a sort of imperiousness going on, a sort of arbitrariness going on. And it's worth noting that for a large number of Americans, we're still a little over a month into this. Uh, you know, what is the tolerance level going to be for some of these restrictions if they're still going on as we head into the summer months? Uh, if, you know, we get to be three, four, five, six months of, of, of social distancing, the economic impact at that point can't really be denied. It can't really be denied at this point. You're looking at you know, 22 million uh, Americans jobless, uh, record jobless claims. We're going to be, be seeing a major economic contraction. But when we get to be months into this, the human cost of the economic consequences are also going to become substantial. Uh, and when we uh, come back with Jim Antle, I want to uh, pick up on, an, I think, an underappreciated aspect of this story. And that's a public safety. And I don't mean from the virus. I mean from people that were in prison and are now out of prison because of the virus. More with Jim Antle, politics editor at Washington Examiner, right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking to Jim Antle. He is the politics editor at Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. He is also the author of Devouring Freedom. Can big government ever be stopped? Hmm, I wonder if that is a rhetorical question. But before we get to that rhetorical question that I'll take an answer to, uh, I wanted to, to pose this, Jim. Uh, had Chris Rufo from City Journal on the show uh, the other day, and he was talking about what's happening in San Francisco, uh, where you have 50 percent of the inmates of the city jail that have been released, while only 4 percent had been convicted of nonviolent drug offenses. And there was talk by Chesa Bowden of the state's attorney there, the district attorney there, of releasing the entire prison population. You have similar things going on in New York City where Bill de Blasio is just outraged that people released from prison would go out and commit crimes again. He's very upset about this. Uh, Florida, Cook County, where I live in Chicago, in, uh, in, in Illinois, Chicago specifically, this seems to me something else that is afoot that if you see real uh, crime spikes in urban centers while everybody else is uh, sheltering in place, 
this is going to put more pressure on the political leadership of individual states and cities. Absolutely. And I, I think that's one of the drivers of, of the protests is that you see a situation where you could get arrested for violating a, a stay at home uh, protection order. Uh, you know, there are rules against you going out and buying a, a car seat for your small child. Yet violent criminals are being released uh, from from jails, uh, from prisons, because the, the state can't contain the, the coronavirus pandemic within the walls uh, of its own facilities. Uh, so I think people look at that as a basic fairness issue. I think if the, the numbers of people released get large enough, it, it could become a public safety issue. You have a lot of people at home who are sort of sitting ducks if, if we start to see home invasions and, and, and burglaries uh, in this environment. Uh, and if you start to see major urban areas really having to, to grapple uh, with an upsurge in, in, in violent crime. Now, we haven't really seen that yet, although there has been an increase uh, in robberies on the New York subway, even as ridership of the subway is way down because of the, of the virus. Uh, so th- there are a lot of things that people are worried about and I think that that's going to help produce some of the backlash that we're seeing now. And uh, h- how do you right now, if it's even possible? I mean, certainly there's some polling on this. How many people are paying attention to Joe Biden? Not very many. How many people right. are paying attention to Trump? Everybody. But they have very different right. attitudes about that. H- how this uh, impacts yeah, it's been, it's November. It's definitely been difficult for Joe Biden to get his, his name out there, to get to, to really be seen on the same level as the president, the president, obviously, because he's in a current position of authority uh, and is dealing with the virus, has a big advantage. Of course, at the moment, uh, the polling is shifting in Biden's favor just because uh, the status quo uh, right now is bad and people are going to be inclined to pick the other option. I think we don't really know what's going to happen once people start paying closer attention. But yeah, Biden has really struggled uh, to deal with the fact that he's got a, he's essentially confined to the TV and video appearances from his basement, uh, whereas Trump is appearing from the Rose Garden and can get uh, regular TV exposure. Uh, this is going to have an effect on the campaign. It's not clear whether the Democrats are even going to have a live convention, whereas the Republicans are a little bit later in the season and are hoping uh, that they will. There currently are no plans on the Republican side. Uh, for a virtual convention. Uh, Democrats have already had to delay their convention once. So so this has really uh, shaken up the the campaign. You know, you can't have rallies and and, and live campaign appearances uh, to the same degree that we were uh, even in early March. Right. And and, and it's been interesting to watch what's happened in the last week, rather than uh, trying to make news and get attention based on what you have to say about COVID-19 because it's right. difficult for him to articulate anything cogent on the topic. Uh, you bring out uh, the Obama endorsement last week. You bring out the 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 <laughs> the straw man of Michelle Obama as a VP possibility. Oh, sure, I'd love to have Michelle Obama as my VP. I'm sure you would. That is never going to happen. But it's right. his way to try uh, to, to pierce through and have somebody talking about him. And excited yeah, about it. The Obama endorsement helps, you know, get him in, in the headlines. Uh, the Bernie Sanders endorsement. Sanders endorsement might to some extent have been important. A lot of Sanders voters are not necessarily guaranteed to vote for Joe Biden in the same way uh, that a lot of Obama fans were. 
so, you know, Sanders endorsing Biden uh, got him on television a, a good deal. Uh, yeah, he, there's going to be a lot of, uh, of talk about things like Michelle Obama. There are going to be a lot of calculated trial balloons that are designed uh, to get attention because the news cycle itself isn't producing the same kinds of opportunities a major party candidate for president would normally get just because uh, the virus has really sucked all the oxygen out of the room. Did, did, yeah, the conventional wisdom about uh, this uh, this event, uh, this outbreak and the response to it is that, uh, you know, the longer it persists, the more it takes uh, all the states to come back into some uh, full operation of their private sector. Uh, the more that the, the November election is, will be a sort of a status quo election and advantage incumbents, in other words, I'm not paying much attention. Uh, I'm. I'm happy or I'm scared about of the unknown with respect to going with somebody new. So I'm just going to stick with my congressman and I'm going to stick with my senators and I'm going to stick with this president. Well, that's going to depend on where the economy is at, at that point. I mean, uh, you know, if, if we're in recovery and the sweet spot for Trump is you want the economy to be in a recognizable recovery with people going back to work. Uh, but you want this to, the election to happen before there's any kind of second wave of the virus. And I think if if, if that's the situation, Trump is very likely to be reelected. Uh, you know, if if things are still very unsettled, Joe Biden is going to try to make the argument that this proves we need a more conventional president. Uh, you know, whether people buy that argument or not, uh, clearly, if we still have you know over 20 million people jobless. Uh, by the time the election rolls around, that's not a great position to be in as an incumbent president. But a lot also will depend on do people have confidence in Trump to turn it around? I mean, Obama was reelected with over 9% unemployment. And sometimes if, if you have confidence in the president, uh, those economic indicators can be forgiven. He is Jim Antle. He's the politics editor at Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com, author of Devouring Freedom. Can big government ever be stopped? Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, with respect to COVID-19 briefings, it's not just for the federal government. It's not just for governors. Mayors around the country also doing these telebriefings, including the mayors of St. Pete and Tampa, since they're uh, right there next to one another. And uh, in their most recent briefing, the mayor of Tampa shared a little story about a certain quarterback who thought he was above the law in Tampa Bay, newbie. And he found out he wasn't. Let's talk about the sports teams and how great they've been. To Oh, i got to tell you this story, too. Now, um, I always tell people, I'm not one to gossip, so you didn't hear this from me. But, uh, you know, our, our parks are closed down. And so a lot of our park staff, you know, they, they patrol around just to make sure that their people aren't in their contact sports and things. And uh, saw an individual working out in one of our downtown parks. And she went over to tell him that it was closed and it was Tom Brady. So, oh my goodness! Well, there you go. Wow. So, he has been cited. So, um, 
Let's talk about how wonderful our sports teams are. Today. Yeah, uh, newly minted Tampa Bay Bucks quarterback Tom Brady working out in a park in Tampa Bay, and Mr. Bunchen thought that he was special until a park employee, actually sounds like inadvertently, just was shooing him along without uh, recognizing it was Tom Brady until she did. But, hey, he left. And uh, so it's nice. Nice to see equal application, even if you don't uh, necessarily agree with the idea that it's a problem if somebody is by themselves and, I don't know, running around in a park. Yeah, that's sort of a secondary issue. Uh, You're not in Boston anymore, Mr. Bunchen. Get back home and do what everybody else is doing. You know what I'm going to say. Watch No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. This is the number one political documentary of 2019 brought to us by our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla that tackles the attack on free speech that's happening on college campuses, in Hollywood, on social media platforms, the usual suspects, as it were, and also provides some ideas on how you can help act in furtherance of free minds and free speech in a free America. And right now, for my listeners, Dan Prof Show listeners, for a limited time only, use the discount code SAVE25 for 25% off No Safe Spaces, nosafespaces.com, where the live stream is. One price allows you to watch as many times as you want until the end of next month, May 31st. Again, discount code SAVE25 for 25% off on nosafespaces.com, where you live stream it. Watch as many times as you want till May 31st. Critics calling No Safe Spaces smart, vital, urgent. One of the most important documentaries that you need to see today. And you don't just need to listen to the critics. People who actually watch the film, as I have. 99% Rotten Tomatoes rating, which was the highest uh, audience rating for any film last year on RottenTomatoes.com. So again, limited time only. Use the discount code SAFE25 for 25% off. No Safe Spaces, live stream at nosafespaces.com as many times as you want until May 31st and invite Tom Brady to watch it with you. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. The payroll protection program, uh, $350 billion worth of forgivable loans that has already been spent through uh, pending uh, a replenishment of that fund uh, as soon as Nancy Pelosi can divorce herself from her dove bars. There's some recriminations about uh, how the PPP worked. Uh, For example, under pressure, Shake Shack is returning $10 million in SBA loans. Some are arguing the big banks and their preferred clients were pushed to the front of the line. And others are arguing the smaller banks that were more nimble got their clients, the small to mid-sized folks that we want, that a lot, many of whom may be struggling right now, certainly are struggling right now, got them processed through. So it's cutting a lot of different ways. But to give you an example of the frustration that's out there, understandably so, when your life is on the line, your at least your economic life and 
by the way, that's just not limited to your economic life, as we've discussed at length on this show. Pete Vegas, uh, uh, run, writing in the Wall Street Journal, he's the owner of a company called Sage Five Foods in Boulder. PPP loan terms amount to legalized fraud. I own a food manufacturing business with more than 200 employees, recently awarded $3.4 million to the SBA. From what I've observed, the Paycheck, uh, Paycheck Protection Program is completely flawed and will function as a handout to companies that don't need it. Billions of misspent dollars will never be paid back. As a maker of food products sold in grocery stores, my business hasn't yet been negatively impacted by the crisis, unlike many other industries, because, of course, they're an essential provider. But we are worried about a potential shutdown of any of our employees test positive for the virus. So we're doing everything in our power to mitigate that possibility. In the PPP application, only one line pertains to the effects of COVID-19. In signing the application, I agree to the statement, quote, current economic uncertainty makes this loan request necessary to support the ongoing operations of the applicant, unquote. And he notes that they are incurring additional expenses to protect against a potential shutdown. But for the moment, my business is in a strong financial position. Yet in light of recent shutdowns of meat processing facilities, we know our Little Rock, Arkansas plant could be next. This counts as economic uncertainty. And he goes through agonizing over whether or not to apply, but ultimately deciding to do so because why not protect the downside? That just makes good business sense. The headline, I think, belies the intensity of Mr. Vegas's position about legalized fraud. But the underlying point about I'm getting it, I'm doing well, somebody else isn't getting it, they're not doing as well. And so it's unfair. Well, I will say again, you cannot operate in this woozy dreamland where the government can do things quickly and surgically. Maybe a military strike it can do quickly and surgically, but a lot of planning goes into that, doesn't it? You didn't have the time. You wanted to get money into the market and you wanted to get businesses queued up and and, and enlist the banking community to be the connector. And look at what's happening to in the process of trying to replenish the fund. Oh, oh, sure. We everybody agrees the PPP is a good program. Well, then why is it replenished? Because we want we're using this as an opportunity to get to pay off our public sector union friends. What would have happened in terms of a delay had you said, well, now, wait a second. We've got to be very specific about uh, who qualifies beyond just less than 500 employees. Let me see. Let, let's have government lawyers on behalf of the politicians, write up all of these uh, credit strictures and financial conditions that must be met. And then banks will have to go through that with their potential clients or clients or potential clients in terms of process. So what do you want? Do you want speed and billions of dollars misspent, quote unquote, as you say, or as Pete Vegas said, actually, or do you want it on the other side? Businesses closing because they couldn't survive waiting for the loans to arrive. It's very easy to pick apart from any angle if you start from a place of utopia. And if you start from the utopian ideal when it comes to government in particular, then you're deluding yourself. For more on this program, we're pleased to be joined by Kevin Bastuga. He's the co-founder and executive vice president of Signature Bank. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. So you were one of the Signature was one of the banks on the smaller community sized side of the ledger. You were facile and nimble in the moment, as I understand it from our conversation offline, uh, Signature Bank processed a whole bunch of loans over the couple of weeks that the money was available. 
We did. Uh, to your point, you know, being a, a smaller institution, we were a little more nimble and, and able to uh, repurpose people um, in their, their normal day-to-day uh, -day jobs and get them pointed toward entering data into this program and getting our customers loan approvals. So from that Friday morning when the window opened, uh, we began processing, processed all the way through the weekend and kept doing so until the window closed um, on Thursday. So as we sit here, we're able to obtain funding for 100% of our clients that um, applied for it. We did have a few clients that, Dan, to your, some of your talking points before I came on, that didn't feel right about taking the money or felt like they were taking it away from someone else that may have needed it more. There were a few of those stories. But by and large, I think you hit on a point that in the application, there's a check-the-box statement about the need for the funds relating to the effects of COVID. And the definition of that phrase, the effects of COVID, have yet to be determined, have yet to play out in the economy, and have to, have yet to sort of write the story for every company on an individual basis. So the bar here in terms of a company deserving the funds as part of this program was set very low. Um, and I think appropriately it was called the Paycheck Protection Program because it was an attempt to keep people employed within a company as opposed to heading to the unemployment line. Your experience is giving lie to some of the countervailing opinions that are bandied about here. One of them, as I sort of mentioned at the outset, the idea that, oh, it was, it was all the big banks and it was all their clients and their preferred clients, fewer than 500 employees. Uh, but otherwise, it was just the Bank of America, bigger boys that have relationships. And in point of fact, um, a lot of the big banks didn't even want to bother with this program. I, I wouldn't say that they didn't want to participate, but participating in this program, it, it's a heavy lift. The SBA did a fantastic job with the help of the Treasury bringing this online relatively quickly. And yes, there were implementation errors. The fact of the matter is they set up a program in a way to get this money into people's hands relatively quickly. But they did so in utilizing existing private or publicly owned bank infrastructure. And some of those some of those banks, like a B of A or a Chase, they're massive, massive organizations that um you know, you move at the speed of, of getting government. a loan approval. Right. And in terms of getting a loan approval, approval, um, you have to physically go onto the SBA's ETRAN system and enter. It is data entry. So this is basic blocking and tackling. Some banks were able to mobilize quicker than others. There's not criticizing the job that any bank did. And then there were also smaller banks around the Chicago area and medium-sized banks that said, we're just not doing these. We, as a preferred SBA lender, felt like we didn't have that choice, nor did we want to make that choice and um, always err on the side of helping our clients. So we were all in on this from the beginning and uh, literally worked around the clock, and uh, we were successful. And so you, you would say of the first $350 billion, Signature Bank got about $300 billion of that through to your clients, 325 <laughs> <laughs> Round numbers, but use, a, use an M instead of a B. Oh, yeah, okay, sure. No, but... Look, the guy in the Wall Street Journal who does the food company in Boulder, Colorado, I don't begrudge him at 3.4 just because he's doing well now. Right now, no one knows what is around the next corner. And so somebody who is going to take the money that's being available after their business was shut down by the government or existentially imperiled by the government to say, OK, you want me to do this to keep the lights on and keep my employees on the payroll, then I will take that money because I don't know. 
there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing immoral about that. There's nothing fraudulent about that. That's exactly right. And, you know, there's been a lot of interesting questions from clients and, and just general conversations about, well, you know, what if I do lay people off? And what about, what if I then part of my loan doesn't get forgiven? Well, let's look at those situations. No one really knows what those permutations look like right now. But at the end of the day, if you took too much money, you can give it back. And if it ends up being a loan that you need that doesn't get forgiven, it's a very low interest loan for two years at 1%. So there was some optionality that was built into this program that was fairly well thought out. And, you know, the thrust of everything that President Trump and Secretary Mnuchin and, and all of Congress are trying to do now is just push liquidity into a system where we know GDP is really going to take a hard fall here in the second quarter. I think the successfulness on a look-back basis of this program will be determined really by did they time the shutdown along with providing this program to supplement payrolls. And if the shutdown lasts another eight to 10 weeks and roughly the timing works out, well, that's when these loans would be forgiven, then I think it'll be viewed as successful because it'll be the capital infusion that is needed to keep people employed. That's a big if, and no one, like you said, Dan, no one knows how long this is going to drag out. And the question about does COVID-19 affect your business, I don't know how you don't say yes to that. By the way, permutations, that's a Bennett Academy word. Kevin Bastuga, <laughs> Bennett Academy high school graduate. He's, uh, he's marginally the more successful Bennett Academy grad. Kevin Bastuga, co-founder and EVP of Signature Bank right here in Chicago. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. For more on uh, the general topic of uh, the balance that needs to be struck uh, and the consent of the governed that needs to be conferred, at least in representative republics around the world. We're pleased to be joined by Dominic Green, life and arts editor of Spectator USA, contributor to the Wall Street Journal and the New Criterion. Dominic, thanks for joining us again. So um, what about that? We're, we've been having this discussion uh, off and on about uh, you know, just how, how much people in the West, let's just talk about America in the West, can take with respect to being controlled in their economic pursuits. And there's a lot of evidence that despite uh, pronouncements from politicians of May 15 or June 1, that uh, the public is not going to last that long. Well, there are two sets of information that our political leaders have to uh, balance. And of course, they're totally different priorities. One of them is the casualty list. The other is the economic damage. The economic damage is becoming more and more clear. The fact that they're giving away oil is an example. Um, uh, people, are, I think, should be free to decide how much risk they wish to take. It isn't the job of the government to lock us up indoors forever. It is the job of the government to do its best to create an arena for people to live productive lives. If people feel they have no choice but to get back to work, or if they really want to, then they should be allowed to. We cannot be locked up forever simply for our own benefit. It's sinister. And once we've given this power to the government, they're not going to give it back to us in a hurry. Is there a feeling uh, across the pond in England and Western Europe that um, there uh, is a need to be liberated, uh, to borrow from President Trump's tweet about Michigan, Minnesota and Virginia this week? 
there's um, some comparisons being made here to uh, the Tea Party movement. Uh, and I wonder if uh, this is there's some comparisons being made, say, in Britain to the Brexit movement. Absolutely. And, and it's not uh, by chance that the people who've been opposed to Brexit have started making noises in the last couple of weeks, having been very quiet, incidentally, for a while, uh, suddenly started saying, well, we need to delay this now because we all have to pull together. That's nonsense. Government should always be accountable to the people uh, and the people have every right to choose how they wish to do this. It's very clear that increasing numbers of people all over Europe, and of course the French are always quick to uh, riot, and, and in this case they're leading the way and good on them. And I, I would say they're making it very clear that they don't want to put up with this. Uh, this, is, this is the dream in a way that uh, the governments have been hoping would happen, that, that they could finally get real control over all of us forever and really regulate in the smallest possible ways what we're allowed to do. I think it's ludicrous that they would close beaches, public parks, all the places where there's plenty of fresh air and with a little common sense, there's minimal chance of becoming uh, infected. This is overreach and it's tyrannical and bullying. And really, it has to stop before it permanently damages democracy as well as the economies. And it's interesting, too, because um, one of the developments here, uh, one of the, the precedents that has been set, at least in America, is uh, as um, uh, this epidemiologist, uh, Dr. Chris Van Salfalvi, writes in City Journal, uh, for perhaps the first time in the history of public health, decision making will be supported by real time surveillance data derived from hospital reports of influenza like illnesses through platforms such as the CDC's uh, ILI net, uh, the identification of syndromic illnesses through reporting from emergency room visits and sentinel surveillance and the testing of asymptomatic patients in high-risk populations, all that's happening, and he was describing, Burke's describing all that in, in one of the you know nationally televised task force briefings. All that is happening here. And so with the response and perhaps why Trump is not feeling the effects of so many of those protesters, Trump is giving, uh, has, has promulgated guidelines that a lot of the states have followed, including the shutdowns. But it's governors feeling the heat, not Trump. And he and perhaps it's because he has brought the public along all the way from the beginning, including with the various members of his team, been transparent about what they're doing and the basis for why they're doing it and is sort of now trying to do a combination of lead as well as follow where public sentiment is. I I think this is quite true. I think uh, Trump has responded very quickly. Uh, to the changing information that is in front of him. And you know that that famous line, you know, when the facts change, my opinion changes. Well, this is a case of that. Um, The governors seem to have frequently overreacted. And, And in part, I think this is a matter of competence in that they found themselves in a totally new situation and and have overreacted in many cases. While uh, Trump is used to to dancing between the raindrops on on these kind of things, he's a much more spontaneous uh, kind of performer when it comes to it. So, no, the governors have not covered themselves in glory in this. And as you know, their their knee-jerk thing is to issue parking tickets and control orders and further regulation um, because this is what they are in the business of doing. Uh, And in this case, of course, it is not serving the public interest at all. They should simply be telling us, put a mask on, wash your hands, be sensible, stay apart from people and do what you can to hold your life together. What worries you the most coming out of uh, 
COVID-19 as Western democracies start to reopen? What worries you in terms of lasting effects? Well, the immediate lasting effect uh, is the human cost of sustained economic shutdown, uh, unemployment. Uh, Kenneth Rogoff, Harvard economist who correctly predicted the crash of 2007 and 8, is very pessimistic about the idea of a V-shaped recovery. He's saying the longer we are stuck in this limbo, the greater the chance that we're looking at a long L-shaped recovery. And the human cost of a recession is, of course, a slow-motion epidemic. That has to be a serious possibility now because this shutdown has gone on so long. And the other issue, which I think is already becoming apparent, is that we are sliding into a Cold War type situation uh, with China. And to handle something like that at a moment when a country is dealing with a sudden and deep recession, that, that could well be a one-two which any administration would struggle to deal with. So there are serious things at stake at home and abroad for the U.S. now. He is Dominic Green, Life and Arts Editor of Spectator USA, contributor to The Wall Street Journal and The New Criterion. Dominic, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. All right, since we were just talking to Dominic Green, the Life and Arts Editor for Spectator. Let's uh, talk a little bit about art that is life-affirming. How about that? One thing we uh, may enjoy right now, I do enjoy, is watching uplifting movies that affirm my faith. With all the choices, I've got an answer and something what, that you can watch right now, in addition to No Safe Spaces, of course, Dennis Prager's documentary. And we'll get to Dennis Prager with respect to this in just a minute. Patterns of Evidence is what I'm talking about, the Exodus. Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus, which is a documentary presenting evidence that the biblical account of the Exodus is true. Investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney journeyed to Egypt, Israel, and throughout the world to search for answers to one very important question. Did the stories like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really happen? The results of his investigation are monumental. There are three different films in the series, Exodus, uh, the Moses Controversy, and the Red Sea Miracle. The Patterns of Evidence series uh, again, looks at, did the stories as written in the Bible really happen? Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, at home, along with other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. It includes a panel discussion moder moderated by Gretchen Carlson, featuring Dennis Brager, Eric Metaxas, and Ann Graham Lotz. Watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and others in the series, The Exodus, The Moses Controversy, The Red Sea Miracle. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I always appreciate historical context to uh, help us understand if we're in uh, uncharted waters or if uh, these waters have been navigated before. Uh, Paul Kaplan in a piece uh, at Morningstar.com, uh, what prior market crashes can teach us about navigating the current one? In terms of steepness, he writes, the current decline is serious. It roughly matches the initial sell-off uh, during the crash of 29. The other more severe episodes include the inflationary bear market during Vietnam, Watergate, second half of the Great Depression slash World War II, the lost decade, the first decade of the, the millennium, and uh, the World War I influenza pandemic downturn. Uh, the, uh, the interesting thing about this, uh, about this group of, of, uh, five 
an average of 57 months between when the decline began and when the market hit its trough, 125 months between when the decline began and when the market reached its previous peak. Five years to hit the trough, another five plus to get back to its previous high. But does the government response perhaps alter the uh, trajectory of this market downturn? Uh, Does it make it different than the other black swans, or is it just another black turkey, uh, as he references? And we'll get uh, him to distinguish between the two. Paul Kaplan, Director of Research for Morningstar Canada. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, hello, uh, good to be here. Uh, black swan, uh, black swan, excuse me, versus black turkey. You're suggesting that uh, these uh, unique events, like the uh, financial, the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009, um, maybe they're black turkeys, not black swans, because we've had a bunch of them. So how unique can they be? Uh, yes. So the term, you know, black swan became popular, uh, you know, in the in the global financial crisis, uh, 2008, 2009. Um, and around that time, uh, Larry Siegel of the um, CFA Institute Research Foundation published an article in 2009 in the Financial Analyst Journal where he coined this term uh, "black turkey" by basically saying that you know if you you know we if if we look through the data we we see there have been you know we've seen there have been sharp declines in in the past, so it's not a you know that aspect of it is not unique. Right. And you put uh, the initial sell off in this market uh, in some historical context, as I was describing. Give us more color on that in terms of the uh, comparison to other significant downturns. And particularly since the D word is being thrown around as we're looking at the prospect of 25 percent plus unemployment, uh, whether or not we would sink into another Great Depression, Great Depression for the 21st century. Yeah, we just don't know yet. I mean, we really are at the beginning of of this. Uh, you know, there was a the S and P 500 total return index had peaked in February, uh, and it, it's come down, uh, you know, quite a bit, quite a bit since then. So we are definitely in the uh, sort of very early stages of a decline, but we really have no idea of you know how long this is going to last. Uh, you know, uh, you know if and when we'll have a recovery. Um, it's just, it's just, we're really in early stages. It's interesting because you're hearing from people who are experts in the space, billionaire, private equity guys and hedge fund guys saying, uh, they're surprised that uh, the market's only off 15% given some of the underlying fundamentals, but, uh, looking at your analysis, um, and, and again, what I just mentioned, the five market crashes of the last hundred years, an average of 57 months when the decline began and when the market hit its trough. So, um, you know, these declines uh, aren't you can have a, a bad day or a bad week, but but there's going to be some back and forth. And these declines happen, at least historically, over a relatively long period of time, as opposed to sort of living and dying with each day and each daily market uh, performance. Yeah, I mean, there have been uh, some really big ones that do take a long time to, you know, to, to recover from. Uh, you know the ones the ones that you just that you just mentioned, um, but you know this um, you know in e- in each instance it's important to understand what's the same and what's different. Yeah. And I think a very imp- a very important thing that makes this different is that you know in 2008 2009 it was a financial crisis that you know that impacted the economy as a whole, 
And now here we're in a, in a very different situation where this is a, uh, this is a pandemic, which is therefore impacting the economy, which is then impacting the market. So it's just kind of a different situation and uh, really makes it impossible to uh, predict, uh, you know, how long, how deep, uh, you know, if and when there'll be a recovery. A lot of that is going to depend on what really happens in the, uh, you know, in that, you know, in the health field. I want to I want to pick up there when we return with Paul Kaplan. What's different and what's the same as compared to other market crashes? More with Paul Kaplan, director of research for Morningstar Canada, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Paul Kaplan. He's the director of research for Morningstar Canada, looking at uh, his piece at Morningstar.com, what prior market crashes can teach us about navigating the current one, getting some historical perspective on the uh, downturn we've uh, just entered as compared to downturns we've survived as a country. Uh, One interesting thing, just in terms of um, taking a long view of the market, over uh, 150 years, a dollar invested in a hypothetical U.S. market index in 1871 would have grown to $15,000 by the end of March 2020. So you definitely want to take a long view in the the equities market, although uh, 150 years, that's certainly reminiscent of the Keynes observation that in the long run, we're all dead, too. So the recovery, uh, I wanted to go back to what you were discussing before the break, uh, Paul, and that's the uh, what's different and what's the same. The Wall Street Journal had an interesting piece uh, on Friday of last week where they looked at uh, what employers attitudes were right now as compared to the beginnings of the Great Recession uh, a little more than a decade ago. And a big difference is as you were describing, a financial crisis in 2007, 2008, and and people were getting laid off as firms were restructuring and rethinking how they were going to operate. Those layoffs were largely permanent, whereas at least right now, most employers are taking the posture, according to the Wall Street Journal, of trying to weather the storm and resume business how it was prior to the outbreak and the shutdown. And that could have potentially a blunting effect in how how deep this dive goes, I would think. Yes, that's right. Because uh, you know how all that is going to play out in the economy is what the you know the markets are going to are going to be responding to. And so, as you look at um, trying to normalize these uh, market crashes across uh, history and, and incident, you came up with a so-called pain index, and it's sort of interesting. I just kind of wanted to get the methodology behind it because uh, some crashes have a higher pain index than other crashes that have more notoriety. For example, World War I influenza versus the Great Depression. And so just how you calculated. This calculation is, uh, you know, it's best understood graphically. So I would encourage anyone that's interested in this to look at the article on, online. And, and I'll, uh, I'll tweet and that out. Basically, I draw two lines. So one line is just whatever the, the history of the market is. I put a dollar into the equity, you know, U.S. equity market in 18, you know, December 31st, 1870. 
and then you know we assume that you could fully invest in the market and that you could fully invest dividends and pay no taxes and, and no transactions cost or anything like that. So obviously this is a very hypothetical uh, type of calculation. It's to give us a flavor of what's happening. I also inflation adjusted uh, these numbers as well because obviously price levels were very different 150 years ago than, than they are today. So that's one line. And then the other line is anytime that market line is going up, the second line coincides with it. But when the market takes a downturn, that second line remains flat. And what it represents is what's the highest level that we've obtained up to that point in time. And so when you have a market crash, you get a gap between the two lines. And then eventually, when there is a recovery, the two lines again coincide with each other. So you end up with this area that's sort of, it's shaped like, uh, like a bunch of uh, triangles, basically. And the pain index is based upon the areas of those shapes. So if you have a, a downturn, which is not only steep, but also lasts a long time, if the period of decline is long and then the period of, of recovery is long, the area between those two lines becomes, it's going to be larger than if it was just a quick you know, downturn and recovery. So, so that's what the pain index, that, that's where it comes from. And it's basically trying to measure is like how bad is this crash, not only in terms of how much was the fall, but also in terms of how, how long yeah. uh, did, did we have to sort of suffer these lower returns. So, right. And just to, to give concrete examples. So you had a relatively short peak and trough with uh, I'm sorry, a relatively short peak and trough, but a long recovery with respect to the inflation, Vietnam, Watergate, December of 72 to September of 74. But you didn't have a recovery until almost a decade later. And so those recoveries that took a long time obviously inflict a uh, a whole lot of pain. That's right. And so the biggest one in terms of the, of the, of the pain was the crash of 29 and the first part of the Great Depression that you know immediately followed. And then the second one is is the lost decade. Because the lost decade it actually includes two crashes and recoveries, you know, taken together. Because you know, the first one in, in 2000 when we had the dot com bubble crash, and then there was a recovery, but the recovery never got back to the point of the previous peak. Mm-hmm. So then we had another crash in 2008, and uh, so we, so that lost decade is sort of like it's like two big triangles. And when you think of you look at all these uh, uh, of events, these crashes uh, and uh, the peak, the trough, the recovery, um, one of the other things, uh, one of the things that's different among them is the government response to them. The government response, uh, for example, post uh, pandemic at the end of World War One uh, was actually to cut taxes and tighten money and reduce government spending. Uh, that's been very different than the reaction in uh, the last uh, 20 years to uh, downturns uh, uh, in the in the market like the one we're experiencing. And so uh, it seems to me you have a re- the, the challenge is controlling for the government response and all that that implicates in terms of the, the consequences for the duration, as well as perhaps the unintended consequences of government interventions. Yeah, that's a topic which is very hotly debated among among economists. Um, I mean, Economists still, don't, you know, to this day, still don't agree about like what caused the Great Depression, or deepened um, it, right? Yeah, you know, and, and and deeper did, and what, or you know, what, you know, what specific government actions helped, what specific government actions hurt, or you know, or did neither. 
Um, so that's a, that's a, that's a really big topic, uh, you know, certainly beyond the scope of, uh, of, of the article on the website. Uh, but it is something I, I, I have written about in another article in, um, in another Morningstar publication where I do talk about like, uh, you know, what are these various kinds of economic schools of thought and how they, you know, diagnose, uh, the problem of, of recessions and, uh, and, and how they differ in, in what they think the appropriate government response is. He is Paul Kaplan. He's the director of research for Morningstar Canada. And again, I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show his uh, piece, What Prior Market Crashes Can Teach Us About Navigating the Current One. Uh, definitely worth a look for some historical perspective. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Uh, I'm a bit confused from governors and mayors talking about how they need money from the federal government in order to reopen their city or state government. Uh, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. This is uh, Bill de Blasio, the Sandinistan mayor of New York City over the weekend. Senate Republicans are trying to stop aid to cities and states around the country. And let me remind you, blue states and red states, they're actually standing in the way of people of all persuasions, all backgrounds, big states, small states, every part of the country getting the help they need to get back on the feet. So the Senate Republicans don't want to act. They don't want to protect New York City or any place else. But you know what? Literally, with a snap of his fingers, Donald Trump could fix that. If he would just say the word, the Senate would jump. But the president's been silent. So President Trump, what's going on? Cat got your tongue? You're usually really talkative. You usually have an opinion on everything. How on earth do you not have an opinion on aid to America's cities and states? Uh-huh. Um, it's interesting <laughs> since House Democrats are holding up the and have been holding up the payroll protection program funding. You know, that's for the private sector. See, it seems to me now, maybe I'm confused. It seems to me the private sector is the sector that funds the public sector. So the rank order of priority is open the private sector the productive sector, which underwrites the public sector, the dependent sector at the local, state and federal level. But uh, maybe I've got it backwards because uh, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker said the same thing when he was asked on CNBC about a letter that the state Senate president had sent to the congressional delegation uh, ha- asking the federal government to provide $40 billion to the state of Illinois, including $20 billion to bail out its notoriously underfunded state pensions? Well, I didn't write that letter uh, to start with, but um, look, what I have asked the federal government for is the same thing that the other states have asked for, which is we need direct aid to the states because all of us, all of us have revenue shortfalls as a result of what's happened to the economy. And all of us have challenges providing more and more services that are needed as the economy has basically shut down. So 
with that kind of a hole in everybody's budget, it seems to me it makes sense if we want to maintain people, uh, you know, get to make sure they get their jobs back, to make sure they can uh, afford to stay in their homes and, and uh, you know, afford to put meals on the table. I, I'm sorry, the way that they can afford to stay in their homes and put meals on the table is by allowing them to produce, to provide services, to add productive capacity. That's the way. We fund government so that we can provide for the people, or we allow people to provide for themselves so we can fund government. Which direction does it go? This is Dan Proctor. the fake news he's always got the real story this is the dan proft show you are fake news the world is a complicated place you need someone to expose the political fakers fixers and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all that person is dan proft and this is the dan proft show Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. More antibody testing is being done in uh, particular locales. We mentioned the uh, Santa Clara County uh, testing that was done by our friend Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford. There was another study um, uh, out yesterday from a USC uh, of L.A. County. The outbreak in L.A. County could be up to 55 times bigger than the number of confirmed cases, according to USC uh, researchers, uh, the research done in conjunction with the L.A. Department of Public Health. Their uh, uh, preliminary results found that an estimated 4.1 percent of the county's adult population has antibodies to the coronavirus. So that's between... Um, their estimate is between 221,000 and 442,000 adults in L.A. County. That's 28 to 55 times higher than the 8,000 confirmed cases reported in the county through early April. Same sort of thing in Santa Clara County. The caveat to that, well, there's a couple. One is there are, and I, we, when we get to Dr. J, uh, not the Virginia Squires, Philadelphia Sixers Dr. J, but the Dr. J from Stanford, uh, back on the show to um, – address the criticisms of the methodology of his study, got to address criticisms. You know, this is this is all preliminary, hasn't been peer reviewed. The other um, caveat I would add is you're still talking about and, and again, the numbers were the similar in Santa Clara, two to four percent, two to four percent in L.A. County. So that's not the twenty five to fifty percent that some were projecting was the percentage of the population that was in, had been infected, but asymptomatic and had developed antibodies. And so the rest of the population, the percentage of the population that is truly still vulnerable to the virus is much smaller than imagined. You're still only talking about 4%. That still leaves a huge percentage, obviously the overwhelming majority of the population that still has threat of exposure. So it's good to get this information and, Hopefully, we'll be getting more of it to do a better job modeling and understanding what the potential downside is, if you will. But it's not as encouraging as finding out that 25, 50 percent of the population has it. We've developed herd immunity, and uh, it's a very small percentage of the population that still has a real threat, that still faces a real threat from the virus. Those numbers don't tell us that, I don't believe. 
Uh, for more on the whole topic of uh, testing, what we know and what we don't know, we're pleased to be joined by Jack Lipton. He is a Ph.D. He's chair and professor of translational neuroscience at Michigan State University. Jack Lipton, thanks so much for joining us. Say hi to Sparty for us. I'll, I'll do that. Yes, thank thanks you. Thanks for having me on. Um, so you and uh, your colleague, uh, Professor Sortwell, had this op-ed in uh, the Wall Street Journal about a test that uh, has been developed there at Michigan State, and you want to use it, a, a COVID-19 test, and you want to use it, but you're not able to use it, and you want to be able to use it. So tell us the story of you got this test, and why can't you use it? So we'd read a report that came out of uh, university in Wuhan, China, on, uh, on an assay that they had developed there. And um, I worked with um, Carol Sortwell and one of our other assistant professors, uh, Joe Patterson. We looked at it and said, could we adapt this and, and check it out? Because we're neuroscientists. We usually work in Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease, so this isn't our area. But we do molecular biology, and we work with viruses all the time for therapeutics. So we thought we could take this test and adapt it. The test was reported to be about 500 times more sensitive than the standard uh, test that's used to detect the virus. I mean, it reduces the number of false positives or false negatives. So people that, that get missed by the standard test, since it's more sensitive, we can detect more, more people. So we decided to develop this, this test, make sure that this report out of China was valid. And so we took it, we adapted it, kind of made it our own. And we have it working. So we're using it for research purposes right now. So we can test humans through human subject studies, but we can't use the test clinically. Uh, and the reason that we can't is because research laboratories are not licensed to offer clinical diagnostic testing. So this is related to um, some legislation that was passed in 1988, which is, it, it's in effect for good reason, right? The idea of having some regulations to make sure that laboratories that give you your tests for cholesterol or vitamin deficiencies or viral tests are consistently giving reliable and robust infor uh, information back to patients. And a lab in New York gives you the same information that a lab in Nebraska does. But right now, those regulations prevent us from using that test or even the regular standard CDC-approved test because they won't allow university labs to do this work. But this seems to me this is like a this is a Scott Hahn issue. This is uh, FDA doing a, a waiver of this law or, uh, you know, obviously with the assent of the president. But that, that's really what we're talking about here is whether it's through a state agency or congr or your, your members of Congress or directly to the FDA. They should just be waiving this this uh, restriction. Yeah, and they have they have relaxed a lot of rules. So some of the rules that that are, are in place, you know, you have to use very specific chemicals to do the work. And they have eased some of those. They allow research use only materials to be used. Um, but, and they're, they're making it available. They have these accelerated processes called EUAs or emergency use authorizations where uh, individuals, uh, laboratories can put in for, they have a new test. They go, hey, I have a new test. I want you to validate it. Uh, here's the data I have on it. And they'll say, sure, use it. Even though we haven't approved it, you can, you're still authorized to use it. So there are ways that they've been relaxing things in the pandemic to try and make things easier. But this one thing, this CLIA accreditation, which laboratories like Quest Diagnostics have CLIA accreditation, other hospital laboratories do, um, but we can't. And if they could ease that one piece, we can still do everything with the same amount of rigor and follow the FDA protocols to demonstrate we have a working test. So have you gotten? But we just can't. Have you gotten feedback? Uh, in terms of why you haven't uh, received that waiver? Well, I think it requires some political will, right? Uh, people have to be willing to 
to say we're going to do this. And exactly whether it comes from the state, where the state's going to say this seems sufficient for us, because there seems to be a lot of back and forth between what the federal government says its responsibility is and the states. And so if it's a mandate from the federal government, but the states have to regulate it based upon the federal government guidelines, there's a lot of finger pointing there. And also whether this can be taken care of by executive order or whether it has to involve legislation. I'm not an attorney, so when I read the statute, I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like something the FDA could work around if they were so motivated. Yeah. So um, there has been reports about the neurological impact of COVID-19. And I wonder if you or your colleagues have actually studied the virus at all and those reported neurological uh, impacts. No, I've I've been reading some of those reports as well. And everything's so new right now. Exactly um, uh, what what those are and what the, uh, you know, the penetrance of that, what percentage of people have neurological complications. There's so many different things that we don't know about this yet. And trying to understand cofactors that may just be aggravating existing conditions in people that get the, the virus versus actual changes in, um, in neurological function as a result of the virus. Um, it's, uh, right now, we really can't uh, figure that out. And, you know, the virus does produce a lot of inflammation. So that's one of the big things, right? Your lungs get inflamed. You can't, you know, fluid builds up. You can't breathe. And so once you have large amounts of inflammation that are floating around through the body, and this, this occurs because your body's immune reaction releases a bunch of chemicals that cause inflammation, that's used to help clear an infection. But at the same time, that inflammation hurts you. And so that's something that we're very, is very commonly known in neurological disorders. So if you have a stroke, but there's inflammation associated with that injury and it produces additional brain damage. So understanding whether it's virus's effect on inflammation, which is producing neurological problems, or if the virus is actually producing direct changes in the brain is really a question that needs to be answered. What's your perspective on the antibody testing that is slowly getting rolled out finally here? That's been another source of frustration, at least for me, I think some others too, in terms of why that couldn't have been on two tracks earlier, parallel tracks earlier, but it's starting now. We've got a few case studies that we were talking about before we brought you on. What's your perspective? So, so in some ways, when we talked about the viral test, right, there's all of these regulations that prevent us from doing testing with a proven uh, test. All of these antibodies, uh, these antibody tests are starting to come out, and it's clear that a lot of the antibody tests, which are they're manufactured in, in China and they're based upon uh, materials that are produced there, and the government has allowed all of these tests to come without really doing appropriate validation. So I'm actually very concerned that a lot of these antibody tests are giving false positive results because the, uh, the test itself can cross-react with other um, viral particles. And so if you've had exposure to other coronaviruses, like some colds can be produced by a coronavirus, uh, there's cross-reactivity there. And so you may show up and, and think, hey, I'm safe. I got coronavirus. I'm good to go. Uh, when it's actually registering some other infection that you've had previously. Um, so I'm actually concerned that those tests are going to be a little bit too um, permissive in allowing people to, uh, to go back to work. And I think it's really important to get those antibody tests working. Uh, but right now, uh, there seems to be a lot of concern, and a large proportion of those tests, which are coming from multiple manufacturers, may not be as rigorous as we hoped. Jack Lipton, Chair and Professor of Translational Neuroscience at Michigan State University. Uh, Jack Lipton, thanks so much for joining us. Love Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and we go from Jack Lipton, a translational neuroscience professor at Michigan State, to uh, James Logan, who's the head of the Department of Disease Control, director of the Arthropod Control Product Test Center, Arthropod, to be distinguished from the Cillian Murphy Anthropoid movie, and uh, also Britain's leading expert on insect repellents and methods of personal protection against ath- uh, arthropod vectors. So we go from neuroscience and humans to uh, the study of insects, and it's it's fascinating. Talk about all hands on deck for uh, combating COVID-19. Uh, James Logan is uh, the principal investigator of a large research portfolio investigating novel ways to control arthropod vectors that transmit pathogens of medical importance, including Zika, malaria, and dengue fever. And um, he's making at least the prospect of combating COVID-19 fun. If you thought the Abbott Labs test was cool, you haven't heard anything yet. James Logan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi there. Um, so uh, I read uh, this piece uh, in the New York Post and uh, you know, the headline, I thought this was going to be sort of one of these sensational uh, tabloid pieces. But this is um, serious, serious science business. And the uh, gist of it is the prospect that dogs properly trained could actually detect somebody infected with COVID-19. Please explain. So what we know about most diseases is that uh, when you have them, they quite often change your body odor. So they change the way you smell. We know this for a number of diseases. And our previous work on malaria has demonstrated that when you have the infection, when you're infected with malaria, your body odor changes. And what that does is it actually makes you more attractive to mosquitoes. So you're more likely to be bitten by a mosquito if you have the disease. But um, what we have also done is um, trained dogs to detect people who have a malaria infection. So dogs um, have an incredibly good sense of smell and they can learn smells as well. So we know that dogs have the ability to do this. And, you know, through scientifically robust experiments, it has been demonstrated that dogs can detect odors associated with medical conditions. And we know that most diseases have an odor, and we know that other respiratory diseases have an odor. And so it is likely that COVID-19 has a specific odor. That's, that's the first thing that we have to demonstrate. But if we do demonstrate that, um, then I am confident that dogs will be able to detect it. And, and um, you, you, mentioned, uh, you, you mentioned malaria, for example, but also uh, it's been reported diabetes, Parkinson's, even for, uh, different types of cancer, dogs could actually detect with a high degree of accuracy. Yeah, that's, that's right. So there's a, there's a whole range of medical conditions and diseases that, that give off an odor and that dogs can detect. And, and often, um, although there are some reports of people being able to detect those odors as well, and usually our sense of smell is not very good, but a dog's smell is so much better than ours. Um, and as I say, through this um, learning where basically you expose them to a smell and give them a reward when they detect that smell correctly, they begin to associate the smell with a reward and, and, and learn that, uh, that smell and signal when they smell it. And, and uh, at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, where you're the head of the D- Department of Disease Control, um, 
you, you there you, you all have trained Labradors and Cocker Spaniels to detect malaria, as you were just describing. How do you how do you identify the breed of dog or dog the, or the breeds of dog that could be used for this disease detection? So um, so we don't have the dogs um, at the London School ourselves. Um, unfortunately, that would that would be quite nice. Yeah. Um, but we do right. work with a charity. We work, we work with a charity called uh, Medical Detection Dogs, who are our partners, um, and they specialise in um, in choosing the right type of dog for these types of studies, um, and actually deploying dogs. So they they have managed to get um, several hundred dogs out into the community in the UK. Um, to help with the detection of uh, medical conditions with with people um, in the community, and um, so um, we we work with with these guys. The types of dogs that we're looking at using um, are um, tend to be things like Labradors, breeds like Labradors or um, Spaniels. They tend to be very a very good sniffers, but also um, very good at learning. But the temperament of the dog and their ability to learn. And it's really, really important that we, we rely upon those experts, those dog experts, and um, to choose the right dog. And at the moment, we have six dogs um, who, some of those dogs were our malaria dogs, um, but we have six dogs that are ready to be trained. That's fascinating. And and so uh, the, the training and then the testing. So give us the, the sense of how that proceeds in terms of um, uh, the, the, the training and then the um, the trials, if you will, the clinical trials, if you will. Yeah, so the, the, the first stage is to, um, the, the clinical part of this is, is we will be collecting samples from people who have an infection and people who don't have an infection, and that infection has to be confirmed. What's really important is that the samples are collected from people who have an infection but don't have any symptoms. So they might be the asymptomatic proportion of the population, or they might be people who are, who are infected but before they develop symptoms, and that's really important. Once we've got those samples, we then um, test them with the dogs and train the dogs to detect the smell. Now, within a couple of weeks, we know whether there is a smell and whether they can detect it or not. Then within about four to six weeks, we will train them sufficiently that we will know how accurately they can detect. So it's important that we know how well they can detect somebody infected correctly and somebody uninfected um, correctly. And at the same time, we'll also be doing analytical chemistry on the orders to identify the biomarkers within order associated with the infection. And, and, and uh, again, per your previous experience uh, training dogs with respect to identifying malaria infection, uh, it, you suggest that uh, your accuracy is above World Health Organization standards for a diagnostic. Yes, that's right. So for, for our malaria and for other diseases, the accuracy is, is very, very high. And for malaria, um, you know, above the, the levels that the health, World Health Organization would um, expect for a diagnostic. So these dogs can do it with very, very good accuracy. And one of the other keys to this is, so it's not just the potential speed of getting through these trials and deploying dogs, but also the number of people that these dogs will be able to screen. So each individual dog could screen up, screen up to 250 people per hour. Wow. Um, so, and we're looking at scaling that up with other um, organizations who have working dogs already in place for different purposes. You know, think about airports with dogs that sniff out drugs and explosives um, uh, and, and that sort of thing. So there's already a model to use dogs in this type of scenario. Um, and we think airports are going to be a very um, important venue for um, for this type of tool. 
That's fascinating. And uh, making COVID-19 testing fun, too, uh, to sort of kind of as fun <laughs> as fun as you can make it. Uh, he's James Logan. He's the head of the Department of Disease Control, director of the Arthropod Control Products Test Center, and Britain's leading expert on insect repellents and methods of personal protection against arthropod vectors, as he was describing. James Logan, thanks so much for joining us. We'll be uh, watching with a bated breath to see how this turns out. Great. Thanks very much. Take care. Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, at uh, Monday night's coronavirus task force briefing, uh, President Trump uh, at one point mistakenly referred to FEMA as FIFA, like the soccer federation. Uh, to which uh, Stephen Miller, uh, uh, Red Steez, if you're uh, a tweeter, uh, responded to media ridicule of Trump for saying FIFA instead of FEMA. Uh, Miller, Steve Miller, Stephen Miller responding, one oversees almost unwatchable disasters and the other one is FEMA. That was a, a great uh, little jab for us uh, soccer opponents and a little bit of a, a uh, uh, good natured ribbing. To introduce my next guest, he is Konstantin Eckner. He's a researcher in modern German history at the University of St. Andrews and editor-in-chief of, all right, here we go, Spielverlagerung.com. I probably should spell that. That's a football analytics company, and by football, he means soccer. Konstantin Eckner, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, all right. And uh, how close did I get to, to the uh, name of your outlet? I mean, pretty close, actually, for first try. All right. I, that, I mean, it's uh, one of these German words you can't really, can't really pronounce. All right, very good. Thank you. I'm, I'm encouraged. Uh, you uh, have a piece at uh, Spectator.us about uh, Angela Merkel's decision to begin the reopening of Germany. Perhaps a bit surprising because the, some of the initial reporting was that it was really going to be a fairly aggressive phased return to normalcy in Germany, but it turned out to be something a little bit less than that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of Germans, especially uh, those who have own businesses that are shut down, hope that uh, Germany will get back to normalcy quite quickly. It isn't really the case. I believe in that. I mean, it's really uh, confirmed. The government is afraid of uh, basically a rebound effect, uh, meaning that the basic reproduction rate of the coronavirus goes up again and then you have to go back to lockdown measures and it's of course much more difficult once you have lifted some of these lockdown rules to go back to them and enforce them once again well it's interesting because this is um, a uh, conversation we had on yesterday's show about uh, some of the observations coming out of sweden including from their former top epidemiologist uh, johan uh, gisecki basically suggesting that one of the problems these European countries and America, too, are going to have in terms of reopening is answering the question that maybe a lot of political leaders didn't contemplate when they instituted the shutdowns, 
which is how do you open back up? How do you walk it back knowing that you probably only have one chance to walk it back because the public will not support walking it back, reopening, having a, an, an, a, an outbreak or a spike in cases and then shutting it down again? Yeah, and that's, um, I don't think when uh, it was decided in Germany, for instance, it was in mid-May, it was 23rd of May, uh, uh, sorry, March, 23rd of March when uh, the lockdown was then decided and started. Um, I don't think really er- uh, anyone considered how you roll it back because at that point in time it was important to do enforce uh, some measures. And I think uh, Sweden uh, did it differently, but Germany followed the path of, of our countries uh, with hard, uh, lockdown rules. Of course, you can't really compare Germany to Sweden because of the density. You have much right. more um, larger cities in Germany, uh, which are suffering as opposed to a country like Sweden, where you have uh, less people and really spread across a large space of country. With with Germany sporting the lowest death rate in, in Western Europe, is there a, a push? Is there impatience among uh, the Germans to reopen? I think there are two schools of thought right now. You've got one side um, that says, yes, we have to open now because uh, there are much more suffering coming from the uh, economic effects uh, of such a shutdown uh, because of people, you know, running out of money, having to shut down uh, to shut uh, down their businesses, you know, restaurant owners, hotel owners. Um, I mean, the, uh, the tourism industry is basically on its, on its uh, deathbed right now. Um, you have one school thought uh, arguing in that direction, and the other said like that the measures should be as strict as possible uh, throughout the entire summer and even maybe beyond that. So, um, and I think the political side in Berlin, um, they tiptoe for one side or another. They are not really decisive at this point um, because they see that on the one hand you got you got really people getting a little bit angry about it, and on the other hand they see that maybe if we have rebound effects, um, that will also be incredibly dangerous for a lot of people uh, because so far i mean germany has done quite well compared to many other european countries when we come back with uh, constantine eckner i, I want to uh, talk a little bit about um, perhaps some lessons from germany that uh, should be modeled elsewhere because of how well germany has done relative to some other western countries as he just said more with constantine eckner researcher in modern german history at the university of st andrews right after this Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, interesting uh, op-ed from the president of Taiwan in Time Magazine: How my country prevented a major outbreak of COVID nineteen. And uh, maybe the World Health Organization isn't in, interested in Taiwan, but the West should be. They got it early and they got aggressive early. Upon, uh, she writes, upon the discovery of the first infected person in Taiwan on January 21st, we undertook rigorous investigative efforts to track travel and contact history for every patient, helping to isolate and contain the c- contagion before a mass community outbreak was possible. She uh, goes on to explain to prevent mass panic buying. At an early stage, the government monitored market spikes in commodities, took over the production and distribution of medical-grade masks. With cooperation from private machine tool and medical supply companies, 
The Ministry of Economic Affairs coordinated additional production for surgical masks, multiplying production capacity. She talks about uh, uh, President uh, uh, Tai talks about Taiwan has uh, having a top healthcare system, strong research capabilities, and again, as others have mentioned about Taiwan, their experience with SARS, the SARS outbreak in 2003, chastened them as it did other Southeastern Asian countries to be Johnny on the spot and be ready to go. Would something resembling SARS occur again? It did. And they were ready to go. And that's been to the benefit of Taiwan and the Taiwanese and good for them. We're talking to Konstantin Eckner. He's a researcher in modern German history at the University of St. Andrews. Germany uh, is doing significantly better than most Western countries, uh, most Western European countries. Right now, at least according to the statistics, statistics I'm looking at, it's about uh, five uh, point. Well, it's about six deaths per hundred thousand, which is uh, certainly on the lower end in, in Western Europe. Constantine, are, are there lessons in terms of the approach that uh, Germany took over the last couple of months that uh, should be amplified for consideration in other countries? I think at this point it's really hard to take take away lessons uh, for countries that are already right right within the pandemic. I think Germany has done well because of how prepared it was as a country. Uh, there were, were emergency plans in place before the pandemic that were set up years ago that regulated how uh, who pays for uh, detection tests, for instance, for these for these virus tests. Um, and also the healthcare system is set up in a way that there are not any disputes about someone getting to a hospital and getting tested uh, because you have a mandatory health uh, insurance. Um, there are also downsides to having a mandatory health insurance, but in that regard, there weren't any disputes, and Germany didn't lose any time before it was able to react to the outbreak. And I think that's one lesson for, and let's hope that that won't happen soon, but for the next pandemic, for the next outbreak of a virus, that you have to be really prepared and have these plans uh, ready. Um, and so there were also not many meetings between the institutions on the federal side or on the state side needed before everything was uh, went and was really going on. So I think that's, that's a lesson because time is really crucial and in, in when such an outbreak happens. In this country, in America, the, a lot of the discussion has, in terms of what was uh, too slow uh, to respond to the level of, of need is testing. And I wonder if there's any areas of criticism that uh, that Merkel and others uh, have been subjected to anything that prospectively Germany is going to definitely contemplate a game plan for the next such potential outbreak. Not really um, right now at this point, um, especially when it comes to testing, because I mean, that has less to do with the government and more to do just with the, with the structure. Um, you've got uh, laboratories uh, who conduct these tests. Uh, which conduct these tests spread across the country. You have about 200 of, of these laboratories for a really high level, internationally compared. So that was really uh, going in the favor of Germany. What might have been a mistake or where uh, what has drawn some criticism is how the government maybe went overboard uh, with some of the restrictions in terms of uh, really um, suspending fundamental rights to mm. an extent. Of course, I mean, there are also schools of thought uh, that say that's necessary at this point, but um, you can still draw criticism from that. You, you, sure. you can spend fundamental rights. And 
it's never never a good thing to do in any crisis. The other uh, news that was interesting because a, a lot of people, politicians, you hear say, "Listen to the scientists," and that's all well and good. Um, who do you listen to when the scientists disagree? Uh, so, for example, uh, there was a study out of the University of Bonn by a, uh, uh, I understand to be a well-known virologist, suggesting that there was no evidence of transmission in uh, salons and restaurants and those sorts of establishments, providing ostensibly a glide path to reopening those sorts of retail establishments. And I wonder how that was received and how that was processed in terms of the decision the government made. Right. And, and that's, that's where really it becomes a little bit sketchy because you can see in Germany, and I figure our country is, is very much the same, that there are a number of scientists uh, who are now, of course, uh, present in the media, um, and they vary in opinion, and they really dis, uh, disagree with one another. And uh, the, the researcher you mentioned uh, from the University of Bonn, um, he works for university under uh, a state where the prime minister of the state is really in favor of lifting a lot of these restrictions because uh, his economy is suffering heavily because it's, it's very factory-based, uh, mm. a lot of uh, production, um, uh, production industry that everything is shut down. So he wants uh, his state to reopen, and his, his economy to reopen as soon as possible. And the researcher uh, conducted a study with a, with a small sample size. And that was the criticism because a lot of people said it was only one city he really uh, took a close look at, um, and others disagree. But others also there might might be more in favor of uh, harder restrictions. Uh, why are they in favor of these of the hard restrictions? Maybe from a personal opinion, maybe their political opinion um, tells them to to be in favor of, of such things. So it's it's really hard. I think at, at the at the early stages of the pandemic, and you could see it across Europe, but especially in Germany, um, the Scientists really stayed within their, their lane, and they really um, stuck to just scientific uh, arguments. But then they started to make these political recommendations, these, these legal recommendations. What should you do in terms of policies? And that's really they should they should really stay in their lane. I think that that's when they when they do well and when they uh, when politics can draw on their opinions. All right, it becomes a little bit sketchy. He is Konstantin Eckner. He's a researcher in modern German history at the University of St Andrews. Check out his piece on uh, Germany at uh, Spectator.us. He's also the editor in chief of. I'm going to try one more time. Spielverlagerung.com. Mm. Football analytics company. Konstantin, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I don't have as much time with this as I'd like. Maybe I'll pick it up again tomorrow. But I wanted to direct people's attention to this uh, new paper that's been published at Philosophical Psychology, uh, which includes uh, our friend uh, Lee Jessam, professor at Rutgers. Uh, He's the one that came up with the new Orwellian glossary of terms. We had him on the show to discuss pretty hilarious stuff like uh, uh, um, androgenophobia, fear of heterosexual men. Uh, anyway, uh, this is, you can find it at heterodoxacademy.org. Also tweeted out at Dan Prof Show. Here's what they did. They sent a survey to uh, philosophers from Europe and, or two philosophers in Europe and North America. 
They got about uh, 800 responses from philosophers. They asked the philosophers to indicate their ideological views on a continuum of very left-leaning to very right-leaning. Philosophers predominantly left-leaning, 800 philosophers, 75% left-leaning, 14% right-leaning, and 11% moderate. But here's where it gets interesting. Participants reported uh, experiencing ideological hostility across the spectrum, occasionally even from those from their own side of the spectrum, particularly within the left-leaning camp. But more right-leaning philosophers, a distinct minority, as I mentioned, reported experiencing more hostility from their colleagues. A pattern confirmed by third-party reports, participants reported seeing more hostility against right-leaning philosophers than toward left-leaning ones. And then this. Participants reported that they would be more reluctant to defend their own argument if it led to a right-leaning conclusion than if it led to a left-leaning one. This is a confirmation of the Solomon Ash conformity experiments, isn't it? My own argument leads to a right-leaning conclusion. I don't want to defend it. I want to go with where three-quarters of my colleagues are, are at in the philosophy ranks. Ideological discrimination, self-censorship. Uh, the left is more likely to be in the business of both ideological discrimination and self-censorship. That should tell you something about the state of higher education and why a reckoning is due uh, post-COVID-19. And it's also uh, coming from uh, the quarters of our ranks here at Salem, including our friend Dennis Prager. He and Adam Carolla put together the movie No Safe Spaces, a number one political documentary of 2019. Critics calling it smart, vital, urgent, one of the most important documentaries that you need to see today. This study I was just reporting is a prima facie evidence of why you need to see it today. They document the attack on free thought and free speech on college campuses, on social media platforms, in Hollywood, of course. Now you have an opportunity to see it in this downtime. And for my listeners, Dan Prof Show listeners, for a limited time only, discount code SAVE25 for 25% off No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. This uh, price allows you to watch as many times as you want until the end of next month, the end of May, May 31st. Use the discount code SAFE25 for 25% off No Safe Spaces, which you can live stream unlimited at nosafespaces.com until May 31st. And thank you for joining us on another installment of the Dan Prof Show. Please do again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.